Greetings and welcome to another episode of The Hammer, an umpire podcast. I'm Kevin Weber. Well, here in Michigan, we're under a winter storm warning as I do this recording. Weather's not too bad, all things considered. I mean, we've got some sleet and a little freezing rain, but not as much snow and ice as they uh, had predicted. But nonetheless, it definitely makes me yearn for the baseball field and some warmer temperatures. I know some of you guys in the warmer climates are actually getting out on the ball field and calling some games already. Um, but uh, here, we've got to wait to, at least till around sometime in March, usually before we can uh, get out there and, and be freezing for those first few games, but at least we'll be on the field. Uh, I've got some interesting segments, I think, for you this episode. Uh, some things are a little different, some things are a little the same. Of course, I've got a umpire spotlight. I'm going to be talking about uh, National League umpire Augie Donatelli. I'm going to continue with the Federation quiz that I started last week and do five more questions for you. So be ready for that. I'm going to talk about confidence versus arrogance as an umpire, something to consider. Also, we're going to talk about uh, a philosophy on handling coaches. And um, then I'm going to talk about some new publications that I came across through NASO and Referee Magazine, which I'm a big fan of, as I've mentioned in the, in the past. And then I'll do a little um, mechanics points of emphasis for first base and uh, taking place at the plate. I had a conversation with a, a fellow umpire a few days ago, actually a couple umpires I've talked to this about. Uh, about getting assignments. You know, when you get an assignment, um, you can get it in a variety of ways. I usually, 99.9% of the time, I get a text message uh, through Arbiter. And also it sends me an email and all that kind of stuff. But the, usually the, the, the moment that I know I have a new assignment is when I get a text message. And it says, you have a new game assignment from CBUA, from WMUA, from... GRUA, all these different you know things that you might be through. And whenever I get it, whether it ends up being an assignment that I'm really happy about or one that's just okay, I'm always excited. To me, as I've explained it to people, it's like um, like a little gift. You know, somebody give you like like uh, like they bought you a nice coffee or something, right? <laughs> or uh, they bought you a beer or something like that. You know, and uh, I'm excited to see what it is where I'm working, who I'm working with. And uh, I guess the, the reason I'm mentioning this is because as an assigner, there's all these people that I send assignments out to, and I've heard other assigners talk about this as well, that takes them forever to look at their assignment or accept their assignment. I mean, one thing, I, I have my blocks and things updated. So if you send me an assignment, I'm open. I mean, okay, every once in a while, you know, maybe one out of a hundred times I might make a mistake and I can't do it or something. But um, I'm usually pretty good about that. So I'm going to accept that assignment uh, within an hour usually, unless I'm sleeping, okay, or, um, you know, doing something else that I can't be on my phone or something like that. But most of the time, very quickly, I'm going to go in and accept that assignment. Some guys, it takes them days to do that. And I don't understand because I'm always really excited when I get it. Now, I might get the assignment and open it up and see that it's maybe not quite what I hoped for. But nonetheless, I'll work that game. I don't really care what it is, all right? So something to, to think about. I guess each of the games that we work are like a little gift, right? And that's the, the episode title that I've got for this. 
And we need to really consider that because there is going to come a time when all of us can no longer be on the baseball field working games. And all you're going to have is the memories that you had of doing it. And hopefully you got a bunch of good ones. So you need to be thankful for that. So whether it's like the big time assignment that you're hoping for or some game that you're not too excited about, you'd be happy to do any of them one of these days. Okay. So keep those things in mind as, uh, as we move toward this next season and the games that you might be working. Anyway, hope you're, uh, Hope your equipment that you're using to listen to this episode is working working fine for you. And I'm sounding fine. Uh, and I want you to sit back and listen to this episode of The Hammer, an umpire podcast. I've got an interesting topic for you. Confidence versus arrogance as an umpire. Um, We've all hopefully had the um, privilege of working with some really experienced, high-quality umpires. And uh, some of them, um, they might be very good, but they might come off as arrogant. Where others, um, who we appreciate usually working with more, come off with just confidence. Um, if you're around any sport long enough, um, you know, you might be a basketball referee or a football official or something, um, things are going to happen that are going to challenge your, your confidence and maybe make you a little bit less arrogant. Um, but, uh, what should you be? I mean, you know, is one, is it really that much different to be confident or arrogant? What's, what's the definition of that? Well, the dictionary defines confidence as belief in the powers, trustworthiness, or reliability of a person or thing you know, self-reliance, assurance, whereas arrogance is an offensive display of superiority or self-importance and uh, overbearing pride, all right? So obviously, you know, you you definitely would like to be more confident uh, than you would want to be arrogant. Um, And this is something we need to work at. This is how how we deal with coaches and players and our fellow umpires is important because we don't want to come across as that arrogant person, the know-it-all kind of person uh, that rubs people the wrong way and can make more difficult a situation than it needs to be. Um, This is particularly important when dealing with others uh, in the locker room or out by your car, wherever you might be changing. Uh, So, um, you know, when you're handling a situation, uh, for example, with a coach or a player or something, or or even another umpire, a few simple words that explain the decision or that lets the coach or player know um, that you're hearing them um, is important. And of course, you know, usually not talking to players uh, that often, uh, but you know, it might be a ball strike situation um, where you're just being simple about it. You're not trying to be uh, cocky about it. Um, cause that's going to go off the wrong way, particularly when you're dealing with coaches. So, um, you know, all officials, you, know, you need to be confident when they're out there because, um, that, that is definitely noticeable to players and coaches and fans. If you, if you don't have that, but if you're arrogant, uh, that's going to cause more problems than is needed. So something to think about as we, uh, move into this next season, are you uh, confident or arrogant in how you handle, Uh, your colleagues, and uh, the people that you're trying to manage in your baseball games.
If you recall last week, I did a little quiz of five questions from a recent NASA Referee Magazine quiz that's on Federation rules or high school rules. So I'm going to do five more questions this week. And as I read them, I will give you uh, three or four um, possible answers and try to see if you can get the correct answer before I give it to you. So here's number six. The bases are loaded and one out when batter one hits a pop fly near first base in fair territory. An infield fly is called. Runner one is several feet off the bag and tracking the fly ball instead of locating the first baseman who is about to make the catch. Runner one unintentionally runs into the first baseman who still manages to make the catch in foul territory. Here are your three possible answers. A. Only batter one is called out. B. Only runner one is called out. Or C. Batter one and runner one are called out. So what do you got? If you picked B, only runner one is called out, then you are correct. Question number seven. With a runner on third, no outs, and a 3-0 count, batter two swings and misses, and the ball gets away from the catcher as runner three tries to score. Batter two stands in the box and unintentionally interferes with the play at the plate. Here are your choices. A. Award batter two first. B. Runner three is returned third. C. Runner three is out. D. Batter two is out for interference. Or E. Runner three scores. What do you got? If you pick C, runner three is out, you're correct. Question number eight. With the bases loaded and two outs, batter one hits a long fly ball to right. Runner one is not sure if the ball will go over the fence, so he goes halfway to second and watches the ball, which falls. Meanwhile, batter one, running at full speed, passes runner one. When that occurs, only runner three has has touched the plate. Here are your choices. A, no run score. B, one run scores. C, three runs score. Or D, four runs score unless an appeal is made. What do you got? Correct answer, B, one run scores. Question number nine. The batting order is Abel, Baker, Charlie, Edward, Frank, etc. In the fourth inning, Frank bats in Edward's spot and is hit by a pitch. His coach then recognizes the error and sends Edward to run for Frank. Here are your choices. A. Legal substitution. B. The umpire should immediately declare Frank out. C. The umpire should immediately declare Edward out. D. If the defense properly appeals, Frank is the next batter. Or E. If the defense properly appeals, George is the next batter. What do you got? If you said D, you're right. If the defense properly appeals, Frank is the next batter. And then our final question for today is number 10. Which of the following runners are out when hit by a batted ball? We have choice A, a runner who is on his base and is hit by a fair line drive. B, 
A runner who is on his base and is hit by an infield fly. C. A runner who is hit by a ball that previously hit another runner. We have D. A runner who is hit in foul territory by a deflected fair ball. Or E. None of the, the above. What do you think? Well, if you said A, you are right. A runner who is on his base and is hit by a fair line drive is out. All right, so those are our five questions for this week, and I will do five more next week. Hopefully you are continuing to study your rules for whatever levels that you work, because very soon, if not out already for most of you, the tests are coming for us for high school and for collegiate baseball. Let's talk a little philosophy. Philosophy on how you handle coaches. Now, a lot of you remember the old times when coaches and umpires would be going nose-to-nose on things, times before instant replay, when the call is going to be what it was. And uh, if a coach or manager in the professional ranks didn't like what was called, they were going to let an umpire know about it. And umpires were expected to be tough-nosed, and able to handle themselves and stick up for themselves and not take any gruff from anybody. Well, in today's game, uh, that's changed a bit. Definitely for us amateur umpires, you know, from the collegiate ranks on down, we're not supposed to be getting nose-to-nose with coaches. We're supposed to be handling things in a much more tactful way. Um, In the baseball umpires manual that the um, collegiate commissioners association the cca sends out every year and they talk about that philosophy uh, about how an umpire should be handling coaches and uh, they mention you know several different things but they have a few points um, particularly three different points that you're supposed to um, to keep in mind one you're supposed to stay calm Uh, two you're supposed to watch what you say and where you say it and three, you're supposed to like watch your watch your hands and watch your um, body motions and um, your your movements and, and the kind of gestures that you make. All right. So let's talk a little bit about those in more detail. So um, even if you have like a coach coming out and he's going ballistic on you, you have to try to remain calm and professional. And, um, you know, some people's professions allow them to practice this more than others. You know, if you just have an office job and you're just kind of doing your thing on your own most of the time and maybe not always interacting with people or, I don't know, you're an IT person and you're just working on computers or something, maybe you don't have a chance to do that. If you are a police officer or some other kind of public servant type person, uh, you're going to encounter lots of people, you know, Um, people that are good and bad and people that are easy to handle and not so easy to handle. So you have uh, an opportunity to do this. Um, I'm a high school teacher and uh, I have students that are cooperative and students that aren't. So I get a little bit of an opportunity to uh, deal with this situation um, pretty much daily. (laughs) Okay. So anyway, staying calm. So nothing good happens when you're upset and you're in a discussion with a coach. All right. So coaches are emotional when they come out there, uh, especially at the, the collegiate level and higher, right? Because a lot of times it's their job, it's their livelihood, right? 
um, for an umpire, um, it's usually not our full-time job unless you're a professional. Okay. But we're talking about, I'm usually talking about amateurs and below. All right. So you have to keep your composure and kind of mimic the kind of response and behavior that you expect from the coach or a player or whoever it is you might be dealing with in a situation. All right. Nowadays, you need to really watch what you say and where you say it as well. All right, because there's always video cameras and recording devices around and uh, they can pick up lots of different things. So you really need to um, really mind what you're what you're saying. All right. There's no defense for using improper language, um, whether it's on the field or in the locker room or, you know, from anywhere, somewhere that might be able to hear you. All right. Uh, particularly, um, you know, with when you're like. If you're yelling loudly, if you're in a locker room after the game, if you're in a local restaurant or bar or someplace like that, you certainly can't do that in the post-game um, post conversations and things like that. I'm not saying that you can't be swearing. I'm not saying you can't be swearing or saying whatever you want around your partners. I mean, you know, I know I have at times, but you got to know the right situation um, that you can do that and you have to be able to control yourself. Um, just like I tell my students in my classroom, you know, I'm not saying I never swear, but I just don't expect them to be swearing in my classroom, and I don't swear in my classroom. Same thing um, on the ball field. Um, you should not be saying derogatory things about people. Now, the higher level you go, I mean, sometimes a player might uh, curse at their performance or something like that, and it's not directed at you. You kind of let it go. I mean, it might be different if it's a little league game or, or maybe a high school game or something, but, um, you know, in an adult league game or in a um, in a collegiate game, um, unless you're having some very conservative, um, you know, religious type institutions that don't tolerate that stuff, or, you know, maybe uh, you're working in some kind of uh, situation that expects you to, uh, to handle those situations differently. Otherwise, you kind of let certain things go unless it's directed at you, right? Next thing, uh, gestures and your hand motions, all right? Um, an umpire should never be the one to initiate contact with a player or coach, right? Players and coaches, uh, particularly at the college level, face suspensions if, uh, if they do such things. Um, they, they can't be touching umpires for obvious reasons. Um, you know, if you have to, sometimes you got to play the cop, right, if there's an ejection or something, and get a coach out of there. You can step in between and, you know, hold them up a little bit and do the stop sign kind of thing. Um, but you're better off if, if you can't control them, you don't need to like restrain them. Just let them do their thing. And if they go all crazy, then they're going to suffer the consequences. Um, you can kind of step in, but you know, you got to know when to like pull back your little roadblock, right? And you can't be grabbing them with your hands or anything like that. A lot of times, especially nowadays, if there is a confrontational situation, somebody's got their phone going right away. They see the person come out and they're like, oh, I'm just going to get some video of this and see what the heck happens. So you don't want to be um, on the bad end of that situation, okay? So those are a few things to keep in mind as far as handling coaches um, in in intense situations um, that you might want to keep in mind for this coming season. Let's talk about some training materials. Um, as I've mentioned before, I'm a big fan of NASO and the Referee Magazine and some of the materials that they put out. 
Um, they do a really good job with a lot of things, and, and they're definitely worthwhile to, um, to check out. Uh, this year, they've um, got a few new things that are available for purchase on their website, and um, you might want to check them out. A couple that I might be getting um, are, they have one called Say What? How to Respond to Players and Coaches. And, and this goes with the handling coaches um, philosophy that uh, I talked about in the program here. Uh, so basically, you know, they're a little... A teaser thing says, when a coach or player talks to you, there's no time for hesitation. Using these proven responding skills tailored to specific baseball situations can help you diffuse conflict and keep the game on track, which is obviously the biggest thing. We don't want to sit there and be arguing with people. We want the game to keep going, right? So anyway, it's a $5, 32-page uh, little booklet uh, that's new for 2020, and I think I'm going to pick myself up a copy and just see what the heck they got into it, all right? Uh, the other one that they have that I think is quite interesting that's also $5 and it's a little 12-page booklet is Guide to the DH Rule, uh, the high school DH Rule. So a, a fast, complete guide to the biggest rule change in years and get everything you need to know about the complex 2020 National Federation of High School rule change regarding designated hitters. And a bonus, which thing I really like, which makes it really worth it to me, is an in-game quick reference card is included that you could put in your uh, lineup uh, protector, um, which, you know, I use one. Uh, hopefully you do as well. Uh, that um, would be very useful in case you have some kind of um, question about the DH rule, particularly this first year. So I was going to make one up my on my own, but if they are going to um, have something like that, they have a little picture of it, I think that would be very helpful. Um, there's lots of other good things that they put out. They always have a prep baseball um, 2020 guide with different things and the rule changes in it. That's usually about $17. Bucks. Um, they have 101 tips for baseball umpires. Um, they have uh, game changers, plays you got to get right. Um, all of us uh, college umpires get the CCA manual each year, but if you're not a, a college umpire and you would like that manual, they sell it for $20, and it, it is really good, so definitely worthwhile if you want to get that. They also have the high school mechanics illustrated, the two- and three-person uh, high school crews. Um, and then they have other things like on balls and strikes and base work and um, warnings and ejections and uh, pre-games. Uh, so there's a variety of things. They usually have like a little package you can get to get several of the books together. They have um, the um, like expanded rule books. Um, you know, you can, of course, just buy the, the regular rule book for Federation and the case book. But they have the one that's by topic and the simplified and illustrated one. And then the preseason guide, which is like three bucks. I mean, if you're going to order some stuff and you don't have one of those, um, it's like a 16-page thing, but it goes through everything very um, intently and, you know, succinctly. All right. And then they have a thing on uh, nine rules you thought you knew. And finally, a study guide for the college baseball test. Um, the NCAA test is due this year on the 20th. you got to have it done. You get two cracks at it uh, to get at least 85%. So I've gotten that before, and it's a very useful book. Um, but you know, maybe at this point, by the time you got it in the mail, you, you wouldn't have a whole lot of time left to, uh, to uh, use it and read through it and make it worth the 15 or 20 bucks that it costs. So anyway, those are a few publications that are out that you might want to take a look at and, and um, help you out with your rules knowledge and your mechanics knowledge and um, here in this off-season.
Let's talk about some mechanics, specifically a couple of points of emphasis that have come down through the collegiate ranks for this coming season. Two things I like to talk about, uh, taking plays at first base and taking plays at the plate, two very important uh, places on the field. We get a lot of plays at first base, and obviously any play at the plate is a, a potential run. So first, taking plays at first base. Uh, it's an emphasis to not get straight-lined. A lot of umpires are doing that, and this has been uh, seen through a lot of the observers. So the big thing is to um, make sure that you're not running to a spot and staying there, but instead going to a starting point and reading the throw and how the fielder is going to receive the throw at first base. And when you do read it, you might have to take a, a read step or two, if you're able to do that, to get a better angle on a throw. So umpires are supposed to read the throw and the fielder and then make the necessary adjustments so they're not straight-lined at first base. So the CCA, CCA mechanics are emphasizing taking plays at first somewhere between two steps off uh, the foul line and a um, like and make sure you have a 90 degree angle and that it's not acceptable to overrun angles to get out in front of the mitt to see the exchange um, and then sacrifice your ability to see a potential swipe tag or a pulled foot this is definitely something that uh, I'm focusing on this year uh, to make sure that I'm doing things in a more uniform and correct manner um, I, I do, you know, I, I, there might be times where I go more than two feet off the line, so I, I'm definitely going to have to work on that. And uh, being able to see that pull foot or swipe tag and taking that read step, something I've worked on the last couple of years, but I know I need to continue to do that as well. The next point of emphasis is taking plays at the plate. And this has been a, a, a long journey to this current uh, wedge technique that we've seen the last few years. I mean, for decades, the method that was taught was first baseline extended and, uh, you know, drawing that imaginary line that would extend, you know, from the first base foul line into foul territory. Then about 20 years ago, um, the new technique was uh, third baseline extended and uh, umpires for up to the last few years have been using that. Maybe some of you do one of those as well. But uh, the new thing that we've been talking about, and hopefully you've heard of it, is uh, the wedge. I personally uh, learned the wedge um, at camps that I attended about uh, three years ago, I guess. And uh, I've I'm definitely uh, made some improvements, and I think it's really helped me quite a bit in my ability to make correct calls on plays at home plate, but also other bases as well, because it, it definitely can be applied there. If you are not familiar with that, I mean, I'll mention a few things here, but you definitely should uh, check out some YouTube videos. Um, you can, you know, Google wedge technique at the plate or different things like that and see videos, particularly of major league umpires um, and, you know, some high level college guys as well using the wedge um, and then try to apply that to your technique for taking plays at the plate. All right. So the, the wedge, um, it was practice kind of more on the east coast maybe down by the virginia dc area and then kind of moved to the west coast or the east coast area over the last two to four years or so and um, why is it called that well you know you think of a, a shape of a wedge or a triangle and the two sides of the wedge represent the path of the runner and the flight of the ball so an umpire using the wedge will be 
in between those two lines to see the point of the play where the tag is applied. All right. Um, so this um, at first can seem a little strange because you're usually moving a little bit more with the play. But uh, once you do it a few times, you see just how plays can really open up for you. As we know, um, collisions are kind of outlawed now in baseball, uh, particularly at plays at the plate because of the injuries that have happened over the years. So now we get a lot of swipe tags um, and catchers applying a tag using that swiping kind of motion when they're in front of the plate. Um, and uh, sometimes they'll, you know, we get a crash play or, or a, a block play, um, but frequently we also get a ball that's dropped. So using the wedge um, allows us to see any of these players, these plays, sorry, a little bit better. Um, some fundamentals for that. Of course, you know, you locate the ball. Um, you usually are positioning yourself closer to the play than you might be used to if you're not using the wedge. So you're usually maybe two to three feet uh, behind the catcher, um, lining up with the catcher's left hip, assuming he's, um, you know, right-handed thrower, which 99.9% .9 of our catchers are. Um, if he was a lefty, then you're in trouble anyway. <laughs> so anyway, you move in and step with the catcher and you remain that two to three feet behind him. And then um, you have to prepare yourself to make a little read step as to see the tag applied. And it's got to be a very purposeful step uh, to see that and making sure that you're steady uh, as you're seeing the, the, the whole play unwind. All right. It used to be guys might be, you know, five, ten feet behind a play to try to see it, get a wider vision of a play, but that's not what you're doing. And frequently you might end up being right um, right in front, in fair territory right in front of the play if, you know, they're sweeping around with a tag and such. So in, in college baseball this year, um, it is a point of emphasis to be closer to tag plays at the plate and working off the catcher's hip and uh, finding the window and making late adjustments um, they, that is very important, a very important factor that needs to be considered when uh, trying to get the best position to, to get plays correct at the plate or any base for that matter, but definitely at the plate. So going to one spot and stopping, not a good habit. You're going to get marked down for that. So in general, on a throw from the outfield, um, the umpire should you know, read the play at the plate from the point of the plate as a starting position. And after reading a potential swipe tag or, or catcher's movement, Move, um, you know, with them. Usually it's going to be third baseline extended on the way to the optimal angle and destination of, as a play unfolds, all right? So on a batted ball, though, to the infield and a quick throw to the um, plate from, from an infielder, the best starting point is immediately going to be third baseline extended and then um, work from there. Um, this will give the umpire um, the opportunity to move back to the point of the plate if necessary or uh, continue moving beyond their baseline extended to an optimal angle as the play unfolds. So again, if you are not familiar with the wedge and you've been using one of the older techniques, um, you really need to familiarize yourself with this mechanic and uh, look at some video and uh, you'll get more plays right at the plate. Uh, I know that that has happened for me. And there's been times where, I mean, sometimes you get lucky, you know, and you're a little out of position and the play is maybe not that close or you almost guess at it. Um, I, I remember this when I've been out of position in previous years where, you know, nobody really says anything, but you're wondering after the fact, hey, did I get that thing right? But uh, when you start using the wedge technique, you know you got it right.
because um, the play just opens right up for you. It's almost like you're like a camera moving around and and you see exactly what's unfolding um, and you don't get blocked out by the catcher or the, the runner or anything like that. So it's um, a beautiful technique and something that you definitely got to look into if you're not using that. We've come to our umpire spotlight, and this week we're going to look at longtime National League umpire Augie Donatelli, who was known as Gus to people that were close to him. But for the baseball community, most people called him Augie. He uh, worked in the National League from 1950 to 1973, and he was very highly regarded umpire during his time. Um, he was known, however, for his inclination to eject players and managers very quickly and also for his the dramatic way in which he would do it um he has a distinction of being the um one of the people on the first ever issue of sports illustrated in august 1954 it's a picture of um west westrom um, as the catcher and the batter is eddie matthews who's a hall of famer and of course the umpire is argy donatelli so that's a pretty interesting connection there um not many umpires get to be on the cover of Sports Illustrated unless you have a fake one, I guess. Anyway, he was born in Pennsylvania in 1914 and raised in uh, Bakerton. Um, that was a coal mining area, and his dad and brothers um, all worked in the coal mines. Uh, this is, you know, coming of age during the Great Depression times, and he considered himself and his family in general lucky for having those opportunities, even though it was tough, dangerous work in the coal mines. He mentions that uh, anytime he thought things were kind of getting rough in baseball or umpiring that he always thought back to the coal mining days that he had and and that nothing that he experienced in baseball was as difficult as that. So he was a young man when World War II broke out and like a lot of the young men he decided to uh, join the service um, before he was drafted and he ended up serving in the Army's Air Force's 8th Air Force during World War II. Um, he ended up spending 15 months as a German prisoner of war after flying 18 missions as a tail gunner on a B-17. It's amazing that he flew 18 missions because if you got over 10 uh, during the war, um, <laughs> that was amazing itself. A lot of those guys got shot down. Um, you know, they lost so many B-17s during that time. So, you know, his plane was shot down during the first daylight raid of Berlin in 1944, and he suffered a broken ankle upon parachuting. He began um, umpiring softball games while a POW uh, before being freed when Soviet troops overran the area. After the war, uh, he thought about, you know, maybe playing baseball again because he did, you know, he was a minor league infielder for uh, about 14 games in 1938. But he was 29 when he got back from the war and he knew that his chances of making it to the major leagues as a, as a, as a baseball player weren't very good. So he thought, I might have a shot maybe as an umpire. So um, he, after the war, he opted for umpiring rather than return to the coal mines as well. And uh, he decided to go to umpire school, which was just getting, you know, going at that time, Bill McGowan School. He went there in 1946 on the GI Bill, which, you know, the GIs could use, of course, for colleges, but, you know, they were allowed to use it for umpire school as well. It's a very big class, almost 300 guys there, I guess. Anyway, he was very impressive there. Um, and um, McGowan actually uh, saw him. Um, while he was there, of course, and uh, kind of pointed about and said that he thought that he would be in the major leagues within four years, which he ended up being correct about that. 
1946, he worked in the Pioneer League. And then in 47, he was in the Satellite League or the South Atlantic League. And then in 1948 and 49, uh, he was in the International League. Life in the minor leagues for umpires in the, the mid-40s was, was rough. I mean, not that it's that easy now, I guess. But in Class C, he made $150 a month with no expenses. And um, he you know, had a partner that was from Pittsburgh, a guy named Pete Donnett. And they teamed up as partners, and they didn't have a car. So they rode the buses on the long trips through Idaho and Utah, you know, Boise. Pecatello, Idaho Falls, Twin Falls, Ogden, Salt Lake City. And um, it was pretty rough in the low minors for those kind of guys. He says there's lots of rhubarbs, guys coming down to the edge of the screen and yelling and challenge you to fight them. And then police escorts to get you out of the ballpark and things like that. You know, when he got back home, um, he didn't really tell his family about, you know, the kind of year he had because it was pretty rough. But he said, when you're umpiring, you're lucky if you last a season. They fire you. In his second year in the Saturday League in 47, he got a raise of $300 a month plus 6 or $7 a day for expenses. Uh, and then by midseason, the National League bought his contract for $2,000 and sent him to the International League. So he was in AAA, and he got $600 a month, $350 in salary, and $250 in expenses. Um, and he said that there was, you know, better organ- it was better organized and there was more police protection in AAA and the rhubarbs weren't as bad as in the low minors. But he didn't have any smooth sailing, He's, you know, for sure. Um, he said uh, it's very difficult in the minors because there are only two umpires, um, even in AAA at that time. He said, on the other hand, uh, there's no place, no better place in the minors to be scouted because there are only two umpires. Class will cl- quickly show and there's no question about that. Well, during his uh, major league career, Don Talley umpired in the World Series in 1955, 57, 1961, 67, and 1973, which was his last year uh, of service. He um, umpired in the National League Championship Series in 1969 and 72, and he was uh, crew chief for... Um, the three-game playoff series to determine the NL championships in uh, 1959 and 62. And he also umpired in the All-Star Game in 1953, 1959, 1962, and 1969. Um, They didn't have umpire numbers like they do now until 1970. And when they did, he was assigned number seven. In the offseason, Don Telly taught at McGowan's umpire school, and he had some interesting takes on umpiring, which I think most of us would still agree with. He said that umpiring is more than applying the rules and handling situations. You must be alert mechanically, uh, be in the right position. That's important. You've got to be in the right position to call a tough play. If you're not in the right position and you guess at it, that's not good, and you'll really catch hell. Says there is also a timing element involved here. You've got to wait that split second and then make the call. A split second. You can't call it too quick or too slow. You'll be wrong or look bad if your timing is bad, especially behind a plate where there are so many decisions to make. When I was working, there was this one one umpire, uh, one of the best umpires in the top ten, maybe the top five. Um, and some of the boys don't want to hear that, but he was just the same. But he waited too long. He waited so long that sometimes a broadcaster would say a pitch was a strike and then he would signal ball. It was so noticeable. Even the other umpires didn't like his timing. Still, he seemed to be getting the pitches right. So he's you know, talking about timing, which we've uh, mentioned before, um, certainly very in- important. He also says uh, mechanics. 
and making a call are also important. You have to be decisive. And I always made a simple but very decisive motion. But no gestures, no dancing or jumping around. Um, so you kind of talked about guys that try to showboat a little bit and doesn't think that that is particularly good as well. So he thinks that once you get those things down, that you know, experience is the big thing. When an umpire gets to the big leagues, he says he he is sure he knows all there is about baseball. But an umpire should improve each year. There's no doubt about that. First, you learn the, the importance of timing on your calls. Second, you get better at running the game. And third, you can handle the difficult situations more smoothly. And then fourth, constant repetition as a pitch caller or a play caller automatically improves a man if he keeps hustling. And then fifth, you're supposed to know all the rules and keep them in your head. But after so many years, you really acquire knowledge of the laws of the game. And then six, with greater experience comes greater execution of the rules. That's definitely some good advice. Now, Donatelli was noted for having perhaps the most dramatic ejection gesture in baseball. Um, in a 1952 game between the New York Giants and the St. Louis Cardinals, um, Donatelli had a very interesting ejection. Uh, he ejected the Giants' Bob Elliott for arguing a called strike two, and then he was replaced by Bobby Hoffman, um, who was then called out on strike three, and he got ejected. So he ejected two players in one at bat um, for called for you know arguing balls and strikes. Okay, so um, I I don't think that <laughs> that's an interesting distinction. I don't think anybody really wants to have to do that again. But I guess you got to do what you got to do, right? For some of my uh, older listeners, if you were around when the 1973 World Series was happening, you might remember Game 2. You know, this is the series between the New York Mets and the Oakland A's. Well, Donatelli was involved in the controversial play when um, the Mets' Bud Harrelson was um, out when he tried to score from third base on a fly ball in the top of the 10th inning when it was tied 6-6. Anyway, the replay showed, and of course they didn't use replay then, that Harrelson avoided the tag of... uh, A's catcher Ray Fossey and then Willie Mays um, he was playing in his final season at that time as well he played the case in front of Don Telly he was arguing um, and then Yogi Berra came out there and argued and of course you know he he called him out so that's just what it was and Berra described the call as a damn joke anyway um, the Mets ended up winning the game 10-7 in 12 innings but um, you know it was definitely a situation that uh, that got a lot of airplay and um, isn't all the highlight reel uh, of the 1973 World Series. Anyway, one of the things that uh, Donatello is most widely regarded for um, is being a primary force in the creation of the first umpires union, uh, which is now the Major League Umpires Association, but it was first the National League Umpires uh, Association, and that was in 1964. They've been talking about it before, talking to some of the um, veteran umpires about how um, they weren't going to have a pension or anything like that, like Jack O'Conlon, who was part of that. So um, they presented this to um, NL President Warren Giles after they had got everything all together with the lawyers and such. And um, luckily for Don Telly, he didn't lose his job, but he was demoted and, and was no longer a crew chief afterward um but you know he continued on for nine more years but um that is still around now and in the umpires union is a a strong force and has done a lot of good things for professional umpires and also for amateur umpires you know indirectly as well so he he definitely um should be given credit for that donatelli is um 
is not in the Hall of Fame. I, I think that he definitely should be considered for that. Um, maybe sometime he'll get that. Fortunately, he um, he died in 1990 down in Florida where he had moved when he was 75. He just you know died in his sleep one day. So that is our umpire spotlight, Augie Donatelli. So I need to make a small correction um, or clarification from last week's episode in which I mentioned in passing the NCAA 10-run rule. I was talking about um, the new rules in high school baseball and how they have the 10-run rule there, of course, in federation rules, and that um, here in Michigan they do have a 10-run rule in uh, junior college baseball. But the um, Division One conferences here in in this state um, and also the Division Two and Division Three, um, they don't use the 10-run rule. But they could, and I personally wish that a lot of them would do that. So remember under Rule 5 in the NCAA rules, by conference rule or mutual consent of both coaches before the beginning of the contest, a game may be stopped after seven innings if one team is ahead by at least 10 runs. Each team must play an equal number of innings unless shortened because the home team need only part of its half uh, or final inning, right? So uh, the Summit League in this Midwest area, which is a Division One conference, does use the 10-run rule. But uh, unfortunately, I think there's only just a handful of uh, conferences around the country that might do that. I'm not familiar with all of them, to be honest with you. Uh, but uh, something that uh, that might be something to look into for sure. So just a little clarification with that, and uh, thanks, Nick, for pointing that out. Well, we made it through another episode. Thanks for sticking with me, as I always say. I uh, must be doing something right because my listenership seems to be expanding. Um, my average audience has gone up and uh, the number of listens I get each week is um, going up as well. So hopefully what I'm doing is good and uh, you guys like it and you keep coming back. Uh, I've even expanded my international base. We added uh, some listeners in Italy this past week which, uh, of course, we've got a majority of our listeners in the United States, but we've got a good number of listeners in Canada. But we also have listeners in Australia and New Zealand, Germany, Indonesia, Indonesia, and Slovakia, which uh, I wouldn't have picked that, but uh, (laughs) there you go. Um, I know I've got listeners all over the country, and uh, I've seen um, some information on guys that are out on the West Coast, Uh, down in Texas, down in the southeast part of the country, of course, out east. And, of course, i got a bunch of guys that uh, listen to the show that are in Michigan and and the surrounding states as well. I appreciate every one of you guys listening. And hopefully um, every episode you get a little something, something that you can think about that uh, might help you improve. All right? I know I'm always trying to improve. That's kind of like my overall theme is what can you do um, at all times of the year to make yourself a better umpire and to reach the highest level you can before you can't work any more games. <laughs> That's pretty much what we got to do. So keep those things in mind and uh, send me any feedback that you might have to my email address at spinalfusion06 at yahoo.com or tweet me at Kevin R. Weber, 1B in Weber, or look me up 
on my Facebook page for this, uh, which is at um, is at the the Hammer Podcast on Facebook, and we've got quite a few listeners. So I appreciate any more we can have, and you can definitely contact me and message me through that. Anyway, until next time, keep calling strikes. <laughs>